Towercast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietley. It's the episode that you've been waiting for, neighbors. We've got Ray Stanford and Christopher O'Brien. We're going to talk mostly about the Sicaro, New Mexico landing. It goes back to 1964, before many of our listeners were born. But it's considered one of the landmark UFO cases. I mean, you hear talk about Roswell and the Kenneth Arnold case in 1947 and the sightings over Washington, D.C. in 1952. But this was a case which the principal witness being a police officer that got really really serious attention even from the air force during 1964 and before we go into the current furor over this case i wanted to ask you ray stanford could you give our listeners kind of a background of what happened in those days in 1964 okay i'm not trying to to provide a really concise account of the events as, as they happened. To begin with, um, actually, uh, a police officer from Socorro Lonnie Zamora uh, was parked on the west side of the um, the courthouse in Socorro, New Mexico. And um, uh, when, he, when he finally pulled out, uh, he noticed a, a fellow speeding uh, going south uh, on the street that was actually on the east side of the courthouse, and so he pulled around and uh, went after him. And as he was um, going after the guy, keeping enough distance that he, he wanted to be sure objectively to, to clock his speed rather than just having observed speeding, uh, he was trying to keep a distance, but uh, off to the right, which would be at that point to his southwest, he saw a brilliant uh, kind of bluish uh, flame-like shape, incredibly brilliant, uh, appear some distance above the uh, the rise that was uh, blocking his view of what would later be determined, determined to be a, a ravine down below. And he also, in the time that once this thing turned on, and momentarily he heard an incredible roar. Well, Zamora knew the era, uh, area, and he knew that just beyond where that thing seemed, if this binocular vision was accurate, to be coming down, there was a dynamite shack that, that had dynamite in it that was uh, that was owned by the Socorro mayor, in fact. And he thought, I'd better check on it. That thing may be blowing up, and somebody might be injured out there. So he hit the uh, the dirt tracks that went over that way, climbing up a hill. And he said that even with his tire just spinning in uh, trying to get up this hill on the rocks, you know, it can get awfully noisy. And it was very noisy, but he said the the noise of this bluish flame was way loud over the sound the sound of the the uh, the tires uh, grinding on the the rocks. And um, let me backtrack a moment. Just about this time, just a little bit before, there had been a um, an old um, green Cadillac with uh, a man and his wife and uh, their three sons in the back seat that was uh, coming past that area going north as Zamora was going south and uh, off to the northeast uh, just a little ways um, a few hundred feet they saw a very what they said was a very strange looking aircraft and it made a turn as they were getting in line kind of between where it was and and they had seen Zamora's car trying to climb up the slope uh, no, I'm sorry. They hadn't. This was just a little earlier than that, and uh, they they hadn't seen that yet. But the thing came on across where Zamora would be going up the slope, and it um, it actually well it passed. The fellow said 
to Opo Grinder at the service station on the north side of town, uh, the Whiting Brothers service station, and to uh, Grinder's son, that uh, he thought for a minute the thing was going to take the antenna off the top of their car. And as it went on over, they subsequently saw the Morris police car pull off the road, been coming toward them, and head up the slope in the direction that uh, the craft had gone. So uh, they went on and, and, of course, told Opal Grinder his son about it. Zamora was having his own problems at that time. Um, he was concerned about possibly someone being injured over there. And when he finally got up the slope, and this is all occurring in a very short period of time, he he found that um, there was something down the ring. Of course, Zamora was a total disbeliever in, in UFOs. This was not anything that was on his mind, uh, any idea about UFOs. He's just concerned about somebody being injured over there, injured over there and, and the dynamite shot sack blowing up. When we got to the top of the rise, he saw down in the ravine something that at that distance he first interpreted as being some kind of a whitish uh, car or, or vehicle that he thought might have overturned. Maybe maybe it had been on fire and maybe that's what caused the flame. But then he noticed right beside it on the northwest side of this thing where there was a, a creosote bush that was about, uh, about seven to seven and a half feet tall. Um, he noticed two persons standing beside it and he said that his gut uh, was they were they, they looked small. He, he knew the area, and uh, he thought they looked to be about the size of ten-year-old kids. But uh, he, he thought it was odd because they were both wearing what at that distance looked to him like white coveralls. And he thought, oh my gosh, you know, you know, they're out of the car, but you know, he was in the car. This kind of thing. All kinds of thoughts were going. In, uh, typical thoughts were going through police officers' mind. UFOs weren't on his mind, and he w- went on over. Uh, to the right of the slope to get around where the tracks would take him near there, lost sight of it temporarily. Well, then shortly he pulled up, over coming up over the rise and stopped. Now, let me break into the account itself and mention that Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who was investigating the case officially for the U.S. Air Force, invited me to come to the site with him and... Uh, uh, Sergeant Sam Chavez of the New Mexico State Police and, of course, Lonnie Zamora of the Socorro Police Department, and and to go through the whole thing with um, with Zamora again. And, and uh, on the 29th of, of April, um, now this had happened on the 24th, late on the afternoon of the 24th of April, um, we were there, and Zamora went through every moment of the event. And uh, to me, the most absolutely memorable part was when we had uh, – now, the, the two police officers and Heineck had arrived in a state police car, but Heineck asked them where to sit in the police car seat uh, as exactly as he had done in in the Segura police car, uh, you know, that few days before. And so he did. And he pointed out that he, when he started to get out of the car after radioing that something strange was going on down in the ravine, possibly an overturned car, he had dropped his microphone and he went and picked it up, put it back in place and looked around as he was stepping out of the car and right there sitting in the ravine, and it was not, could not have been more than about 55 feet from him and probably uh, a little less, uh, was the object. I have gone over this 
in detail with the more, as did Heineck, and the object uh, was, uh, as best I could judge from Zamora's description, an explanation of one end and the other and where they were located uh, in relationship to the creosote bushes. The thing was about 18 to 20 feet long, had kind of a whitish color. It was a, like a long, stretched-out egg shape, called it an ellipsoid. And uh, he was, of course, astonished. He was expecting a car to be there. He didn't see the two little figures any longer, but just as he had been getting out of the car... He heard something that uh, was reminiscent of, of what he'd heard in the Army. He served in the U.S. Army, and uh, he, he described the sound he heard as one and then another slamming of very heavy, he said, it sounded as though they were very heavy doors reminding him of tank hatches slamming when he was in the Army. So this means something very massive. It certainly doesn't, doesn't sound like, you know, any car door slamming. And um, he is he rapidly, he said uh, he was moving rapidly, stepping rapidly, I think was his exact words, toward this thing. He saw on the side of it, right smack dab in the middle, a red uh, symbol. Uh, I prefer that term, or, or a shape. I don't like the term insignia because we don't know if it designated, uh, you know, maybe where doors had been closed or something that we don't even understand. So insignia it could be a misnomer. In any case, he saw that, and it, it stuck in his mind, and he, was, he had taken some steps down the slope, and when he got, and I stepped this off and measured it, uh, I stepped it off at the side. When I got back to Phoenix, I found a similar slope out uh, in Paradise Valley, and I, I walked down it the same number of steps that I'd taken Zamora, uh, at, you know, after Zamora took the steps, and I measured them. And he was about um, about 35 feet from the object itself. He could see that there were girder-like legs, and he used the term girder-like. And um, this would suggest legs that maybe the uh, outer one was a little slimmer than the next one, and that slimmer than the next one that could slide into each other. And uh, But as he, the thing was sitting there, suddenly there was an incredible roar. I mean... This scared the daylights out of Lonnie. I mean, he thought it was blowing up, uh, and there was incredible blue. He was looking right at it, and out of the bottom of something he said he thought would be maybe about a four-foot diameter uh, opening, this incredible flame, as he described it, appeared. It was kind of a very intense blue light that just a little bit around the edges and more down where it was hitting the ravine bottom, a kind of orange. And uh, he, being trained in the Army, immediately dropped and hit the ground face down with his uh, his head turned to one side, as he would do in, in the Army when you're expecting an explosion or a grenade or something. And um, when this roar then continued, instead of being an explosion, which he kind of thought it was, uh, he jumped up and started running to the car. Now, let me point out that from the time that he saw the occupants uh, back uh, on the garage to the east, and that while he was in the car parked right there about 50, maximum 55 or so feet from the object, he had his prescription glasses and his sunglasses right up, uh, snap-on sunglasses right up on top of them. And um, he was seeing things quite clearly, including that strange red shape on the side and uh, girded like legs. But then, of course, he hit the ground, 
And once he knew it wasn't an explosion and it was continuing, I think he realized there was something there that intended to take off or was taking off, and he jumped up. He started running back and uh, running toward his police car, occasionally looking over his shoulder to, to see what was happening. And uh, the object rose to about, well, somewhere between, uh, let's say, 15 and 20 feet above the absolute ravine bottom. Not from where Zamora was up the slope, but the ravine bottom, probably 20 feet. And um, it cut off this blue flame. And uh, but at that moment when it cut off, there was not dead silence. There was a what he described as a turbine-like kind of a whistling wind-down type of sound, as if something that were spinning at high speed were slowing down. And uh, this only lasted just a very few seconds, and there was dead silence. And the thing which had come to a stop about 20 feet above where it had been sitting, or where the, the ravine bottom had been, uh, began to move away quite rapidly uh, in the direction he thought of the dynamite shack, which wasn't very far away. But, um, of course, uh, Zamora had run on up the slope, and he ran into the car looking back at it, knocked his glasses off, but all of the close-range observation was complete as while well, he had his glasses and, and sunglasses on. And uh, he was glad he had the sunglasses on because the flame was quite bright, and uh, apparently it helped him discern details that uh, he wouldn't have been able to see if he hadn't had uh, some of the glare knocked out by the sunglasses. Well, he didn't take time to pick up his uh, his uh, glasses because although uh, at, when he was climbing up there and hit the car, the roar was continuing, he wanted to get the car between him and the object. Now, he demonstrated this all to us, and you could see it was, it was, it was wonderful to be there firsthand. You could see the, still the, the recreation in his mind of the terror he had gone through. You could see it all over Zamora. And uh, he took off across the hill, and uh, uh, then when he, with the car between him and where the object was, but when the object started moving off and, you know, had gone into the whistle and then the silence, he went back, picked up his glasses, and washed it. Now, in just a, a matter of uh, uh, a few seconds, uh, not more than uh, I went over this with some more, and uh, he had originally estimated 10 seconds, but as we went over this, uh, I think realistically it was more like 20 seconds that it took the object to get from where it had hovered above the, the takeoff location to uh, what Zamora thought, uh, as best he could tell from his two-dimensional vision, was over the perlite mill about a mile away or on the west side of, um, I think it's Highway 60. And the thing then began to angle upward uh, at very steeply above uh, the mountain range back there behind and beyond the perlite mill. And uh, just in a matter of a few seconds, it had gone... It had disappeared into with with actual distance, and uh, now I, I should tell something that uh, I'm not sure. I don't recall if I put it in my 1976 book on this subject, but uh, uh, I had extensive interviews with various members of the police department and the sheriff's department at Socorro, as well as uh, a couple of the uh, New Mexico State policemen. And uh, all the policemen there who had uh, originally heard, and, and the sheriff's people, that had been either in the sheriff's office or in their cars and had heard Zamora's call about uh, something going on down in the ravine, they all said that they had talked subsequently 
uh, they had many of them had rushed out to the side, but uh, they'd all talked to to uh, New Mexico State Policeman Sam Chavez, who had heard the call and uh, knew Zamora and was concerned, and he took off, and he was the first one to arrive at the site. And uh, Ray, uh, I've got to just interrupt for a second. So Zamora called in this incident to headquarters. He did to the sheriff's office. At what point did he make that call? He made the call. The first call was made uh, when he just as he got to the top of the was getting to the top of the hill and and he seen the flame and uh, as, as he as he was starting to make the call uh, he came up top of the hill and here was the object in the ravine with these two beings that looked like ten year old kids in white jumpsuits right, uh, out right. there beside it. That's when that's so, when he was making the call. He, he he said uh, that there may be a uh, uh, a you know I don't know I don't know the exact words that's in the book an accident of some sort a car down in the ravine and uh, he was quite concerned at that point because you know he didn't think in terms of a UFO if anybody thinks he was being suggestible by auto suggestion that's completely wrong. It's okay. So, to, to more right. Nature. Right. So so then he makes that first call. Does he then make another call that suggests to headquarters that he's dealing with something unusual? Uh, yes, well, he did. And, uh, in fact, he finally, uh, when, when he got back to work, he'd get the car radio after trying to protect himself by running off to the, the north, uh, you know, beyond the car, I think, above. And he said, um, they said, he's, he, uh, he, in his excitement, he, uh, he somehow thought that they were, who he was talking to was looking out uh, a uh, a south or south into the southwest from windows over there on that part of the uh, uh, the sheriff's office there. But of course, Nat Lopez, the dispatcher, was actually where he could only see out the the north window near to the to the north of the northeast, and so he didn't know what the heck the was talking. About. He said, "What does it look like?" And he said, well, "It looks like a balloon just going away, you know, really fast." And, uh, but Chavez had gotten there by that time. This is what, what I learned from the policeman. Chavez never told me this. Chavez, in fact, was convinced early on that Zamora had seen a secret experimental aircraft that had taken off the White Sands. That, he also didn't believe in UFOs, and to this day, so far as I've heard, he doesn't. But he really, he, he was concerned, and uh, he didn't want to talk about it. He didn't want to give it any more credence because if it was a secret device, he just didn't want to, to talk about it. And uh, But the policeman said that he saw the thing, not near the ground, not over the perlite mill, but as he came up the, the slope, as Zamora had done, he saw the thing moving away at very high speed, steeply up into the sky. And I'm convinced from the several people that Chavez told us to, or they said he told it to them, that that is a fact that he saw it also. You hear it on TV, you hear it on radio, cash for gold. Yes, it's an enticing phrase during these challenging days, but the real question is how much cash are you going to get for your gold and silver? Are you going to get the best value? Well, you can get the best price from a company whose owners have decades of experience in the business. Welcome to Goldbug. The folks at Goldbug warn you that many of those high-budget gold buyers are paying far less than you deserve for your gold and silver. Goldbug will give you top dollar each and every time. To learn more, call one 596 6134 
That number again, 1-866-596-6134 for Goldbug. Or visit us online at goldbug.com. That's Goldbug with two Gs, goldbug.com. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hi, this is Michelle from Namecheat. We don't have millions of dollars to get race car drivers or models to endorse us. But we will do everything we can to make those who buy domains or web hosting from us as happy as possible. We offer a free SSL as well as free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers or troublemakers. We won't bug you with obnoxious upsells when you check out or in your inbox. But most importantly, our customer service team really cares about you. It's what we pride ourselves in the most because it's your endorsement that means the most to us. If you like what you hear, get deals on both our domains and our web hosting at radio.namecheap.com, radio.namecheap.com, and be sure to play our contest by following us on Twitter. Thanks, Michelle. And by the way, listeners, please use the coupon code RADIODAY, that's RADIODAY, one word, for special discounts at Namecheap. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking about the Sicaro, New Mexico UFO case, considered a classic case that occurred back in 1964. We have Chris O'Brien and Ray Stanford. Of course, Ray was there. Ray investigated on the scene talk to the police officer to get all this information that he's presenting to us today. One thing that I've always been curious about with the Sakaro case, Ray, is the fact that you had all this noise attached to the object, whereas so many other UFO cases, the craft is virtually silent. Now, have you considered that particular anomalous aspect? Actually, it's not that uh, anomalous in the context of reported UFOs. Uh, I did a phenomenological survey uh, before I finished the Squirrel book, and in fact, I list several cases in there that uh, that one can compare because of their similarities. And actually, a special, seeming, seemingly special takeoff and landing propulsion mode is actually not that rare at all. Whenever we, in fact, hear of the object shape, of this particular shape, uh, when they're making maneuvers like that, uh, in all the cases I can remember off the top of my head, we do get a, a roar, and um, it's not that unusual. In fact, uh, as it happened, well, uh, th- there's a real fine case uh, that, um, if I wanted to take a moment, I could uh, find here. Uh, it's in it's in the book, but um, there was a real excellent case in France, and um, and, and there was the roar, the shape, and the uh, the observer also saw the occupants. Now, in case someone thinks he was just making up a story, keep in mind that when he went into town and uh, went to the police, he was so much in shock, they said he looked like he was about to pass out. Well, he did. He passed out. <laughs> uh, he was still in so much. This is the French person, the, the French witness. This is the French case. This is 1954. Okay. 
10 years before Socorro. And I might also mention that um, as far as roars from objects shaped seemingly exactly like the Socorro object, uh, on the night of July 19th, 20th, in the midnight hour of uh, uh, 1978, what's it, nine? <laughs> anyway, uh, our project lab uh, observed, filmed, and recorded uh, uh, two objects of this exact shape, and uh, we recorded extreme low-frequency gravity waves and extreme low-frequency magnetic waves uh, from these objects. But when they made sudden visually immediate reversals of direction, even moving at high speed, uh, there was for three seconds on both sides of the actual visually instantaneous reversal of direction an incredible earth-shaking rumble reminiscent of that thing that you probably remember hearing in Close Encounters of the Third Kind when the little boy was being uh, drawn out the uh, the pet door when the mothership was uh, abducting him. sounded exactly like that. So we actually have audio recordings of something that probably, if I were to play it for some more, he would say it probably sounded very much like what he heard. Chris, do you have a question to put in here before I ask one? I'm just I'm just absolutely fascinated uh, listening to to Ray's account and and I think before before I really um, weigh in on this I I, I do want to uh, mention to the listeners that you know I've read hundreds and hundreds of books on on UFOs and I consider Socorro Saucer in a Pentagon Pantry to be the finest book ever written about a single UFO case and and Ray's. Uh, Amazing uh, investigation of this case, I think, is um, stands head and shoulders above uh, any other book on a single UFO case. Now, one thing that occurs to me here, too, which really adds credibility to this case, is the fact that the Air Force officially had no answer. Is that correct? That's right, David. Uh, is it David? Was that David that said that? No, that was oh, Gene. Gene. <laughs> Okay. Uh, you know, people Sorry. confuse us all the time. We confuse <laughs> each other, and therefore it gets to be really, really raunchy. Go okay, ahead. well, I'm glad to see that my confusion is, is backed up. Let me mention, you, you talked about confirmation. Yes, that's a very important. And, and the CIA as well chimed in on this. They were equally puzzled. But I want to add one thing that I forgot to tell you. This is a day. Walter Schroeder, who's still living at age 92, was the owner and operator of K Radio KSRC there in Socorro, New Mexico. And he he knew Lonnie long before this happened, and, uh, and he did interview him. But he also did some investigation, and he found that radar in Albuquerque had tracked an object, and the, the, the blip size would have been right about the kind of thing you would expect from the object, the, the score object size, moving south from Albuquerque toward Socorro. And it was moving really not at high speed. In fact, it turns out it would be about the kind of speed that the tourists from Colorado and the old green Cadillac had reported the thing approaching from. So I think that that's highly important. But here we have also a radar case coming right down the corridor from Albuquerque to Socorro, and that, of course, completely knocks out the idea that some of the skeptics with totally no basis and that the, the CIA would tell them was wrong and the Air Force would tell them was wrong, claiming that this thing was something that accidentally got off course from White Sands. White Sands, uh, any place something like this would have taken off from would have been to the southeast 
of Socorro. And the, the thing tracked on the radar was coming right down almost parallel with the, uh, uh, what is now, at least I don't know if it was then, the, the interstate between Albuquerque and, and Socorro. So has anybody seen those radar records, Ray? Not to my knowledge. But so we don't, time, we don't there really know. no freedom of information thing on, on that. Right. This is something that, that uh, Walter Schroed told me, and, you know, I, I can't prove it, but uh, right. Schroed found that it, was, that it was credible, but that's all I can say about it. That's all I all know right. about it. All right. All right. Please go ahead. All right. And uh, let me mention, too, that, uh, in fact, last night I was, I was talking to my uh, – good friend and, and colleague in this research, one of the, the people who I really respect in it, uh, Chris Lambright in Texas, and who, who many of you may have seen beautiful color painting reproduced on various websites, many of them illicitly from the original site where it appeared, but it, it, it did a wonderful painting after after talking to uh, Zamora in depth. Uh, he did a, an excellent painting of this object uh, landing or, or taking off. Uh, I think it was intended to be the, the landing of the object uh, in the ravine. And Chris um, told me about um, this was, of course, some years after the event, but uh, uh, Lonnie had relaxed a lot and had become more talkative about it. There was a period where he became more talkative about it. Uh, and uh, Lonnie told him about a woman and gave him the name of the woman there, uh, kind of north of uh, the landing site, who had heard the roar. And she looked out uh, from where she was, and she saw uh, Zamora's police car. She didn't know it was Zamora, but she saw a police car knocking up a lot of dust. It was just trying to get high, too high a speed, uh, spinning the wheels, going up that slope to where when he got to the top, he saw the little occupants, uh, uh, occupants outside of it. So there was a witness. Now, Walter Schrode and I were having dinner in uh, the restaurant bar there in uh, in Socorro. Uh, this, this would have been, I think, on the, probably the 28th of, uh, of April 1964. Two women there overheard us talking about this case. And uh, they came right on over and they said, hey, you know, we didn't see it, but we both heard it. You know, they were in their their homes. And uh, they had no idea that it involved a, a, a UFO or something in the sky, but they said they heard a, a tremendous uh, roar with low-frequency components just, you know, beating on their the plate glass of, you know, the, the glass panes of their, their windows. And uh, then it turned off, and uh, quite suddenly, and uh, then they said, you know, just not a long time later, they heard... It again, and they wondered what the heck. We've never heard this, and uh, of course they never looked out. But I can tell you, if they had been pulling their legs, they would have said they looked out because they were putting it in the context of the Zamora case. They said that the, the timing. They, had, of course, by that time heard about the case in the, uh, I believe, the Socorro paper, yes, and uh, probably on the radio as well, and probably from the talk around town. And they knew what had happened, but they didn't embellish. They had simply heard the roar of the landing and the takeoff. Now, as you'll see in the Socorro book, there were, counting those uh, auditory witnesses, well, there were 11 other witnesses to this case. And uh, I have some reason to believe that there may be others that we haven't uh, been able to get the names on as yet. Well, I won't, I won't go into that any further right now, but uh, there, in other words, the case was not a one-witness uh, event by a long shot. May I share a, a, a funny anecdote about something I published in my book?
Hey, neighbors, the old way to meet for business is over the phone or in person. The new better way is to meet clients and colleagues online with GoToMeeting. GoToMeeting is like meeting in person, but less time-consuming and less expensive. Start your meeting with just a click. Everyone can see your computer desktop on their computer screen, so they can follow along as you move from page to page. You can use GoToMeeting to host a sales presentation, a product demo, or a training session. Even collaborate on documents by sharing your screens. Our listeners can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. That's a month of unlimited online meetings free. For this special offer, you must visit www.com. Go to meeting.com slash tech podcasts. That's go to meeting.com slash tech podcasts for a free trial. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. We have Ray Stanford. And we have Christopher O'Brien. We're talking about Sicaro, Mexico, one of the classic UFO cases, and something where some controversies have recently erupted that we're going to get to in a few minutes. But right now, Ray, go ahead. Tell us the anecdote. Okay. In, when I was writing the book, I, I had told uh, Ted Blocher, a well-known old-time UFO researcher like me from New York, who was, who was famous for his uh, coverage of uh, occupant cases, and Ted knew that I, in fact, uh, that I, I was writing the book, and so uh, I heard from him that he had something that would really interest me, and he sent me a Xerox of a newspaper article out of the, the paper in Dubuque, Iowa, and he showed photographs of some fellows named Kais and, and Kratzer that had been on Highway 60 west of the event, and had seen the uh, the takeoff apparently of this object, either takeoff or the landing. I'd have to review it. You know, I wrote the book in '76, but uh, they saw this, and they they also Tamora said that when this it was odd that this exhaust underneath the object uh, that he was so close to, uh, you know, 35 feet from approximately, uh, that it puzzled him. Uh, he said he did knock up a little dust around his edges and was coming up and blowing. There was a step wind and it was just blowing up, you know, across the ravine and over the edge of the ravine, which is, I believe, probably what uh, may have been seen by guys in Kresser. Uh, but he said that what really bothered him was that this bright thing that he had taken once he knew it wasn't an explosion to be a kind of a rocket exhaust didn't do what the rocket exhaust did uh, that he had seen in uh, Tassin launches out at the White Sands Proving Ground. He said, it, you know, I expected things would be bouncing off the ground. This plane would be bouncing back up the slope even at me. And he said it wasn't. It was like it was knifing right into the ravine bottom. Now, that's, that in itself is highly provocative of <laughs> theoretical extrapolation, I say. And uh, it, it makes me think not of a – if people say, well, that's a plasma exhaust. Well, it's not because plasma would have bounced off. And he probably would also have felt some strong electrical effects from it. He didn't feel anything like that. It sounds more to me, as I said in the book, as though we're talking about uh, perhaps uh, subatomic particles accelerated to relativistic velocity. That means to near enough the speed of light that their mass has greatly increased. Now, such particles would then go into the, the ravine soil and would, in fact, create, because of the particular elements that are there, probably short half-life atomic isotopes that would lose uh, the energy they absorbed over a short period of time. Well, there's some interesting backing to this. 
Well, Ray, before you continue, just quickly, um, what kind of half-life would those materials have? I mean, when you say quickly, uh, what do we, what do we mean? It's been years since, since I went over the, the question of possible half-lives considering what they were hitting. But we, we were talking about, if I remember correctly, we're talking about half-lives within a matter of hours. Okay. Uh, not, right. not more than, you know, you know, 20 hours, maybe 30 okay. hours, something like that, maximum. All right. All right. But here's the interesting thing. In August that year, when I went back to Socorro, New Mexico, uh, Lonnie told us something really interesting. He said he, th- he thought I'd want to know this. Police, uh, New Mexico State Policeman Ted V. Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N, had arrived at the scene um, and taken uh, them. Uh, I don't remember if he's the one that took them right at the time or where he took them the next morning. But when it was known by the Air Force investigator that he had taken the film and it was unprocessed, they asked that he give it to Heineck and, and, and that Heineck, you know, would bring it to the Air Force, uh, I presume, right, Patterson. In any case, Heineck was given the unprocessed film, and there was a promise that Heineck extended to uh, Officer Jordan of New Mexico State Police, and that was that as soon as they processed the film and made prints, they would send the film and even prints to him. Well, it never happened. And so Jordan had complained to Zamora. And uh, Heineck had, uh, pretending it was just a, a casual stop, you know, just along his way somewhere, <laughs> along his way to nowhere except the girl, uh, he had stopped in and talked more to Zamora and uh, their analyst. And uh, uh, Zamora said, hey, what happened to Ted Jordan's film? And Heineck said, well, you know, they couldn't send it back to him because when they processed it, it showed fogging, which they said looked as though it could have been caused by some type of uh, nuclear radiation. Mm. And uh, they felt that this was too important, and they could not uh, send it back to them. Interesting, they didn't even send him a note. They didn't, they didn't there because they'd have to explain why, and they would let the cat out of the bag. Well, Samora told me this, and, and Heineck suddenly confirmed this to me, and I have the ultimate confirmation of it because I have here right beside me a commercial quality videotape made by uh, experts in Texas of uh, Alan Heineck sitting right out in front of our executive offices of our project in Austin, and uh, I am talking to him, and I asked him, did you tell them all this? Did the Air Force tell you this? And he confirms every word of it that they would not send it back because the, the balance fog is still by radiation. So I've got Alan Heineck, who at the time of the Zagora event was, of course, the Air Force's official investigator, telling that the Air Force uh, covered up seeming evidence of uh, short half-life, what apparently is short half-life radiation uh, from the site. Right. And now, I think that, that's extremely exciting. But may I, I, I was going to tell an anecdote. Heineck was sent a copy of the Socorro book manuscript before it was published because I had a lot about him in there and I had completely undressed him as to the Socorro press conference and his pussyfooting with words to try to conceal the fact that Zamora had seen these like 10 year old size, if they were humans, occupancy white coveralls, etc. So Alan came down to visit us, as he did fairly frequently, our uh, operation down in Texas tracking UFOs. And uh, and he, he told me that he loved the manuscript. He said, you gave me exactly what I've had coming to me all these years. And um, he said, but Ray, he said, tell me something. How in the world did you ever do what I couldn't do, the Air Force couldn't do, and the CIA couldn't do? 
I said, what's that? He said, you came up with the names of two other witnesses to this thing. And he said, you've done better than we all did. He said, where in the world did you get that information? I said, Alan, I don't think you want to know where I got it. And he said, oh, I, I definitely want to know. And, uh, <laughs> I said, well, Alan, I'm not sure you want to hear this, but since you insist, I'll, I'll tell you. My information came out of a corrugated box in your attic at home, at your home. Man, I'll tell you. I, I don't know if he had false teeth, but if he, if he did, I'm surprised he didn't drop them <laughs> when, no. I, when I said that. And Ray, I'll tell you what had happened. Yeah, let me Well, well Ray, before you. you continue, okay. before you continue, I'm going to just ask some questions here. Let's get okay. back to the episode. April 24th, the, the, uh, Zamora reports this, obviously, to his superiors. Is it true that that evening people started arriving? Do you have Air Force and FBI people yes. coming in like that same oh, yes. day? Exactly, yes. Uh, they, uh, of course, have to refer people to my, my book, but uh, the I, I list everybody that, that showed up at the site there. Uh, and, uh, I mean, it was immediate. The first person, as I said, was Sergeant Sam Chavez from the New Mexico State Police. Now, uh, Sam Chavez... Was, was that... Hold on one second. That was Zamora's immediate superior? No, no, no. He, Sam Chavez was the New Mexico State Police. All right. Uh, Zamora was with the Socorro Police Department. All right. And, uh, but they, they... He had been listening on the, the Socorro uh, Police Department radio frequency because he was operating in in that area and, and wanted to know, you know, what might be going on. And they listened because in the first place, you know, when somebody's going to get on the highway and you head up to Albuquerque or something and they need the state police to pursue them beyond the school city limits. And, um, uh, but Ted Jordan told us that when he arrived, the Zamora was, was sweating. He said that he was like he had a cold sweat. I mean, there was a wind blowing. He should have been cool. But he said this guy was just as white as a sheet. And he said he looked like he'd seen a ghost. He said it was a cold sweat, the kind when you're just freaked out. And anyway, Zamora pointed down in the ravine where the object had taken off, and lo and behold, still smoldering there was uh, a creosote bush that had literally been cut almost in half by this flame. I mean, there, there wasn't much uh, uh, of the... It, now, I understand, creosote is not a tree, it's a bush, but this was a pretty good-sized bush, and... Uh, I mean, it was burned up. I mean, you didn't see a bunch of twigs flying all over the ground. I mean, this stuff was disintegrating where the, the so-called flame or exhaust, or put in quotes, uh, had played upon it in at some point in the takeoff. Now, uh, in relationship to that, someone the other day on uh, the UFO update said, well, you know, Heineck wasn't very scientific. Uh, you know, uh, he didn't take any control samples. Uh, well, he did. Heineck was there, and he said, oh, gosh, I wish I had brought something to put samples in here. Uh, and I said, wait, Alan, and I opened my briefcase, and I had a box of, I think it was 50 or 75, clear plastic files with these flexible plastic tops with, in fact, a textured surface to, to write code and note on. I said, take as many as you want, Alan. So he and I both collected uh, samples. Alan took controls from a more distant creosote bush that, had not been near the, the flame. And uh, so that puts that the lie on that story. Then we thought about the fact that uh, this thing had come in from the, the northeast, according to the the people from Colorado who seen it come across. And um, in coming across that way, when the flame was on higher up in the air, uh, when Zamora had first seen it, uh, there's a theoretical possibility if it was breaking its uh, approach that... Uh, 
the flame had shot off slightly to the southwest. Well, we looked all around the landing site, and the only place where we found papers with strange burns on them were, uh, or any burns at all, were to the southwest of where that thing had come in at the southwest of the landing site, uh, and the object had come in from the northeast. And Alan took several of those, and then, you know, he found paper that had not been uh, burned and took those as controlled. And I likewise, I still have uh, several of the pieces of paper, one of which is especially interesting. It has several of the parts where there are just little dots. Now, this particular piece of paper is actually the paper that would be torn off of a corrugated box. Uh, with a pattern on one side of it where you see the corrugations have been sticking to it. And there are little bitty, uh, bigger than pinhead size, uh, let's say um, half of a very small, well, let's say BB size to twice BB size burned spots on the paper. The whole thing is not burned. This is strange burned spots. And there are three of them, but one of them, the, the, the one that has the most burn uh, around the spot, has concentric dark and paper-like colored uh, rings uh, around it. And uh, it's rather odd. I'm not saying that it has significance, but I have some nice uh, uh, scans of it that I've, I've made, too, in case uh, somebody that's doing research on this is interested. But um, anyway, that paper was there, and Heine picked up some with strange burns on it. And, you know, what the Air Force did with them, I simply don't know. But I do know this. Uh, Heineck told me later, and it's in the official Air Force, Force papers on this that have you know been released through the uh, into the National Archive, that uh, they found no evidence of any kind of hydrocarbon fuel. Uh, we had taken the samples from the bush; uh, they were still there, but were were scarred and, and burned on, on the edges, and uh, there was no hydrocarbon carbon residue in the ones that Heineck took. And he had also, as I said, controls from outside the area. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. <laughs> the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. I'll tell you, yeah. we're talking with Ray Stanford and Christopher O'Brien. We're focusing on the Sicaro, New Mexico case from 1964. David, you had some further questions you wanted to follow up on before we proceed. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, Ray, uh, when did you get there? And did you get there alone? Did you arrive there with somebody? And when did you start? I'm assuming you gathered samples from the area, for example, of the ground where this thing supposedly came down, right? Boy, did he. Yes, yes, yes. yes I just said, yes, yes, I did. And these were taken with Heineck when Heineck was there. In fact, uh, 
a friend just, just sent me one of the photographs from the Air Force files that I hadn't, hadn't seen a particular photograph of me standing there with Sergeant Chavez and Alonia Zamora looking at one of the, the landing imprints. And uh, I took samples at that time and I had taken some earlier. Uh, well, when was that? When was I that? Arrived, let me say, let me look here. Um, I'm 71 years old, and <laughs> this was 1964, so I'm looking back to make sure that I'm accurate when I tell you when I arrived. Okay, here we Presumably it was within days of it happening, right? Within less than four days, uh, I think two days, three days maximum after the event had occurred. I arrived the uh -huh. same day that Alan Hynek arrived. Okay. So tell us about the materials that you gathered, please. Okay. The most important material that I gathered, and... Uh, was uh, has never been published, and uh, this is going to come as a surprise to those who um, in this thing was you know a student rank or something. Um, first, I should mention that uh, uh, Dr. James McDonald, the, the late uh, atmosphere senior atmospheric physicist at the University of Arizona at Tucson, uh, about whom a, a book uh, has been written about his involvement in in UFO research. He was the I would call him the the, the premier advocate of scientific UFO research uh, before Heineken came out of the closet as a result of Socorro. And uh, I, had, I had met uh, a couple of times with him, in fact, and I, I found him to be a wonderful and forthright man who genuinely wanted to uh, approach, even while Heineken was, was still, you know, pulling the Air Force line, he really wanted to approach this scientifically. Well, he got into the Socorro case, of course, and uh, he... Uh, was told by a an analytical chemist who had uh, supposedly been working for a contractor of the uh, Air Force that um, and, and the details of this can be found in um, Andropel's book about uh, about Doctor uh, McDonald. In, mm -hmm. in any case, uh, what she said they found they found um, the same uh, later than the night after the landing. Landing was in daylight. But they found, she said, vitrified sand. That means sand that had been uh, heated by some means to the point that it had the, the, the grains had glued together by the glass that their surfaces had become. And uh, she also said that they had taken uh, samples from the bush and uh, and other items in the area, and that no uh, hydrocarbon residues, no residues of burning. Uh, hydrocarbon fuels of any kind had been found on any of the samples so that they did not believe that uh, it was some type of hydrocarbon thing. For example, if someone alleged that this was the uh, the, the, the heating element under a hot air balloon, well, first of all, it's going the wrong direction. It came up the bottom of the object and uh, diverged toward the ground, got wider toward the ground. And also that would have left a very clear uh, hydrocarbon uh, residue imprint, let's say, chemically speaking, and there was nothing of that sort. But the the vitrified soil, uh, it's unfortunate that uh, uh, we've not been able to get access to that because that would be highly important. Uh, as a result of learning that, uh, I decided, uh, well, look a little further. And so uh, my wife and I and another couple uh, uh, went from Austin back to Socorro several years later. And we uh, went to the side, and uh, thanks to the original recommendation of the uh, local FBI agent, Arthur Burns, um, originally they had put, uh, after 
the initial event somehow exactly when the FBI agent got involved. He said, you know, protect those landing gear imprints, put rocks around them. Well, the rocks, most of them, were still there, and I recognized, of course, the, the bush pattern. And we went, and I, using my data, such as you see in the drawings of the book, uh, I found the place where the landing exhaust, so-called, played upon the ravine bottom. Well, of course, uh, after all that time, you would have some floods up there in the desert and uh, some washing of ravine uh, gravel and sand uh, down the ravine uh, to the, uh, uh, I guess the direction there would have been to the east, if I remember correctly, and approximately. And so I just simply moved the loose sand that was there, which could have been there, but not on the surface originally, or it may have been washed over it subsequently by flooding. But I got down to an area that, based on my experience, looked like old ravine soil dating well before the uh, event of April 24, 1964. And there was a piece of volcanic uh, rock that was there that immediately struck me as odd because... Uh, in one area of its surface, now understand it's a it's a kind of a dark gray with a slight tint of brown. It's a typical volcanic rock, but it has it's cooled slowly enough it, that uh, it wasn't uh, actually eruptive material. But it's from the ancient volcanism there, which I have the date in, in on my files that this kind of material has been dated to in the region, and it it uh, cooled slowly enough that it has quartz crystals that grew in it, several sizes of, of quartz crystals. And um, this means that it cools slowly enough that the crystal could grow rather than just leaving the glass. And uh, but here's the thing that that I find really exciting. Now the green material needs to be uh, analyzed. Uh, of course, we don't know what it is or how it got there, and I, you know, I, I I don't know whether it has scientific importance or not. But the rock itself has great importance. It turns out that uh, uh, I. I and I says under binocular microscope, and it turns out that the quartz crystals in the rock, now the rock is not melted. You can see the grains that comprise it, but when you get to larger size quartz grains, not the sand, but uh, the ground on the surface from where it was in the ravine bottom, but when you get to the larger grains that grew into the original uh, magnetic material, uh, something very strange has happened, at least in the surface areas. They have been melted and re-solidified, of course, much too rapidly to have crystallized. In other words, at the surface, on the surfaces of the volcanic rock, we see you see the outline where the the uh, matrix material contained a quartz crystal, excited quartz, and uh, in cross section. But where it is exposed, it has, you can see that it is beaded up and then frozen as glass. Now, when you look at a crystal, a quartz crystal like the others from the control samples that we have, uh, you see that the, the beam of light is uh, undergoes uh, the action of the crystal is, is what's called birefringent. The crystal structure splits it to go in two different directions. And, uh, by the way, uh, with the help of uh, a Bureau of Land Management, uh, uh, a person happened in the Bureau of Land Management, uh, I was able to have him collect, even though I you know, was remaining back here, I had him collect, I think it's just under 100 pounds of samples of the exact same kind of rock. 
and I have them marked off by that he, the map that he made where each specimen came from uh, in relationship to the place where this was found about three to four inches beneath the surface. Now, the, the surface of this rock is quite unlike the surface of the other control samples in that the surface where the quartz crystals are at the surface have been melted and refrozen. Now, this has, well, I think fairly earth-shaking implications to the, uh, concerning the nature of the, the takeoff and landing device. First place, the, uh, the sand around it was not petrified, was not turned to glass. The, the ground mass of the rock itself, comprised of, of smaller crystalline material, was not melted. It's only the larger quartz crystals that are melted. And this is suggestive of, uh, the, I, it strongly suggests that uh, resonance heating occurred. Otherwise, the ground mass itself, the sand around it, should also have showed uh, melting and, and then quenching. What's the definition of resonance heating, Ray? Okay, this would be, in this case, we would be dealing with a some type of magnetic field that is capable. Okay, let, let me first give an analogy. Uh, many of the persons who will be listening to this have uh, electrical watches, and most of them work on the basis of a oscillating quartz crystal current is put through it, and it oscillates at a certain speed. Mm -hmm. But if you had a magnetic field, and um, this also may have been helped along by whatever was penetrating the soil instead of bouncing off of it, uh, the subatomic particles. Uh, you could induce a resonance, I believe, into the crystals to where they begin to oscillate. Now, once the, the oscillation gets to the, the point to where energy within the crystal is being you know, transferred into kinetic form, I'm, I'm sorry, from the kinetic form into a, a heat form, you're going to start getting melting, and the, the crystalline structure, the birefringency of the crystal is going to going to dissolve, and you're going to get uh, isotropic light transmission, which is what we have on the uh, uh, the remnants of the crystals at the surface. Uh, in other words, they're no longer crystals, but they're glass. So it would be a, a resonance phenomenon now, Exactly so, what the so, nature of the the inducing field was, I'm not in a position to say because you know I wasn't there with with my instruments at the time, but it suggests a resonance phenomenon. All right. So what you're basically saying is that this melting effect is not just the product of heat. And by the way, that of course begs the question: What level of temperature are we talking about to create this kind of reaction okay. Uh, okay. without this resonance effect? Right. Okay. Now. A quartz crystal of that type normally has a temperature, uh, depending on certain small uh, variances, uh, at uh, 1400 degrees centigrade and, uh, and, of course, above that. But uh, most quartz crystals will melt at 1400 degrees centigrade, but it will not be melted uh, if it's below that temperature. So we, we would believe that the crystals resonate in such a way as to induce at least 1400 degrees centigrade temperature within the oscillating crystal. And that's pretty damn hot for people who, who, who don't know met, uh, the metric system. That's pretty damn hot. That's Even if we're hot. just talking about centigrade, uh, Fahrenheit, that's way hot. It's, it's, it's way hotter hot. than any yeah. hot coals in your barbecue bed. We'll put it that way. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so we have a UFO that's hotter. We're going to break in a few moments for our hourly break, but we should mention here that we'll hear more from Christopher O'Brien in the second half, but he has a new book out called Stalking the Tricksters. Tricksters! 
<laughs> Just yeah, now. the trickster is stalking me. He's stalking me. I'm going to call the cops because I'm a trickster. He can't stalk me. I have rights, damn it. I have rights as a trickster. We'll interview the trickster in the second half. Okay, trickster, settle down, trickster. Settle down. I'll bite his ears off. I'll bite his eye out. He can't even look at me anymore. He can't stalk me if he can't see me or hear me, right? We'll have the exorcism later. You haven't seen an exorcism until you see a Jewish exorcism. And Ray is author of Sicaro's Saucer in a Pentagon Pantry, which I guess is more or less out of print now, although you can find some used copies over at Amazon. But I should point out that our friend Mac Tonys, who has been on our show and is one of our favorite people, says in his review of that book, Ray Stanford's 1976 Sicaro's Saucer in a Pentagon Pantry is the definitive account of one of the most fascinating close encounters on record. But that's only the beginning of it. We'll hear more about the case, what we know about it, bring us up to date, and then about the controversy that's recently arisen on the other side of the Paracast. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. Ray Stanford, Christopher O'Brien joining us. We're talking about 45 years later, Sicaro, New Mexico case, still considered one of the classics in UFO history. Chris, you had some questions. Um, I do, uh, Gene. Thank you. Ray, I think one of the most important, I guess you're saving the best for last, uh, one of the more um, intriguing elements, I think, to your investigation uh, when you were there with Alan Hynek are the samples that you found ablated off onto the rocks that uh, appeared to be uh, underneath where the landing uh, pod, uh, landing right. girdle-like structures were. You, uh, why don't you describe that for us? Okay. Let me mention that even having happened to know that something might be important on that rock, I'll have to credit that, not the discovery, but that knowing that something might have happened is interesting there to Lonnie Zamora himself. I want to say, that I haven't said, that in my experience, and over my 50, 57 years of UFO investigation from early in my teens, uh, I have interviewed hundreds of people who claim to have either had or claim to have had uh, encounters with UFOs, many of them, you know, close range. And among all the persons I've interviewed, I would classify Lonnie Zamora as the most carefully objective and honest observer that I have ever worked with. That tends to be confirmed by what Dr. Lincoln LaPaz, the famous uh, tracker of meteors and back in the 50s under government contract, the green fireball, uh, had to say about Lonnie when asked. It happened that Lonnie had also observed a meteor that LaPaz was tracking. And so he went to each person that had an observation and uh, had them point to the places where they first saw the meteor and last saw it. And he took the coordinates, the, eleva- the uh, azimuth and elevation uh, of where they were pointing. When he reduced this data uh, and was able to determine uh, which ones were most accurate because of debris found on the ground of the meteor, uh, he found out that Lonnie Zamora's were incredibly accurate. That this man, he was astonished at how well this man had could accurately reproduce just pointing the sky where he had seen it at the beginning of his observation and at the end of his observation. This says a tremendous amount about the quality, the observational ability, and the objectivity. You know, uh, this meter was at night, and the mind tends to distort size of object 
angle above the horizon and so forth when you're looking at uh, a bright object against the night sky. But here Lonnie Zamora was giving him, he said, as accurate data as he had ever gotten from anybody. And uh, Zamora that day at the site on the 29th of April, 1964, when uh, Heineken invited me out with them, just as uh, we had collected the, the various samples and so on, and we're just about to to go back into town because the press conference that I describe in detail in the Sapporo book was about to occur at a motel in town, um, Lonnie said, you know, I just noticed something. And he pointed down at the northwest landing gear imprint, and uh, which at that point had ended right to put around, but I'm not talking about those who were floating out around it. He pointed to the imprint itself, and it was right there beside that, by the way, which he had seen the two small occupants, uh, so-called like they weren't occupants at the time, but we presumed they were occupants of the craft. And in fact, as we stood there, I, I said, wait a minute, Lonnie. I said, how tall would you say from what you saw back there on the rise? Would you say those occupants stood in relationship to this bush? And he said, well, he said, you know, he said, notice his name sticks out. He said, their head, uh, both their heads were below that. And he said, so I have to say, you know, they have to be. And I said, uh, yeah, I was saying, yeah, yeah. He said, yeah, 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 they're kids. He said, I said, how old? Maybe, maybe 10 years old. He said, I don't see I could have been any older than that. And, uh, uh, so we were able to get that, but he's pointed down. He said, but "Look here." He said, "It looks like to me that right by where they're standing, that this this particular land gear might have scraped." He said, "Look at that rock." It says it. He said, "It has a, a scrape or a break on the edge of it, right at the edge of the print." And Honey kind of odds and mine. He said, well, uh, "Yes, it does." And uh, my mind said silently, "Ellen, I hope you miss this significance." He did. I kept my mouth shut, and we jumped in our cars, he and the police car, and me and my Volkswagen, and we headed to the press conference. But when it was over, um, I uh, took off from the side again, and uh, Alan had not put two and two together and come up with four. You know, if a landing gear made of almost any substance has scraped down a long like kind of volcanic rock that was scraped there that Lonnie Moore had pointed out, you're most likely to have at least some minute particles of whatever the land gear was made out of on that rock. And I'll never forget, uh, nobody was there at the site. Heine was heading out of town with uh, a, a police officer, transporting him back to Albuquerque. I'm not police, I'm an Air Force officer. And uh, so I took the rock, I carefully dug the sticks, the, the sand out around the, the two edges of the more diamond sand, and lifted it out carefully wrapped it in newspapers and put it in my, uh, under the seat in my VW. But I noticed something very exciting. I didn't have my loop handy at that point. It was back at the, the motel. But there was seemingly metal scraped on the side of the rock. But when I got it back to Phoenix, unwrapped it, took it out and unwrapped it, I was thrilled. There was metal scraped onto that rock. And one of them was even the silver you could see uh, in the direction that uh, the line gear uh, would come down on it, it was actually rolled right off of the, as if it had been, uh, you know, a metal coating or something, or at least part of the metal of the land gear, and, and it was just rolled up like a sliver. And I think I have photographs of that. That's one of the unfortunate things is that uh, uh, there were uh, some friends of mine who wanted to show it to, and one of them uh, reached out his hand to grab it and grabbed it right where the sliver was and knocked that into the 
brass, but we didn't know if it was magnetic, but I got a big, very powerful magnet, and we tried to pull it out, but uh, we couldn't find it. But we still had the other stuff uh, smashed up to its surface, and uh, this was uh, a sudden, I was investigating this case, I had been authorized by Richard Hall, I have correspondence in my um, files to clearly show that, to investigate this case for NICAP, the National Investigation Committee on Aerial Phenomena, and um, we discussed the matter, what do we do with this metal, and um, and all uh, off the opportunity for me to bring it to uh, the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center here in Greenbelt, Maryland. In fact, you know, I live about three miles from the, the NASA Goddard Space, Flight, uh, uh, Center, Goddard Space Flight Center right now. In fact, my wife works out there. But um, he suggested that, and I accepted it. So... Um, um, I describe in detail what happened in the book, but I'll try to make a long story short. Uh, I had a lifting meeting with Dr. Henry Frankel, who was the head of the Space Materials Division uh, for the Goddard Space Flight Center. And he had, he, I, I made it clear to him that uh, if I let them do an analysis, I wanted the results untampered. I wanted the real facts. I wanted to know exactly what it was. And I asked him if the results suggest the possibility that this might not have had a terrestrial origin, would you be willing to testify? Congratulations on all this is in the book. And he said, yes, I would. Okay, that satisfied me. But um, anyway, he said, okay, now, in fact, I talked to him. I, I don't remember if to check the book, but I, I, it seemed like now, thinking back, uh, maybe 45 minutes to over an hour uh, before I finally consented. And um, he said, now, what we have to do, he said, you guys can, can go to lunch or to cafeteria, and uh, we'll take this and and uh, scrape the metal off of it, put it under radiation so that on Monday we can do X-ray diffraction uh, of it and see what this is, we looked at it under a binocular microscope, and all present agreed that it was uh, metallic. In fact, uh, Frankel himself uh, mentioned that uh, that yes, it, it looked like it was, uh, in fact, had been rather warm when it was scraped onto there. You know, as if it, so. So let's jump right. Let, let's jump because we, we've got we, we're running out of you know we've got only so much time here, and we have a lot more material to cover. What was the bottom line of the analysis then? Well, the um, uh, well. Let me first talk about part of the cover-up. When we got back in the cafeteria, he had agreed that only half the metal would be removed. Well, Frankel was nowhere to be seen when we got back in the cafeteria, and one of his subordinates was there. He handed me the rock, and much to my dismay, all of it was gone. Mm. And I said, "Look, you've taken all of it." And Richard Hall stepped up and said, "You know, you know, if you don't, you don't, don't make a scene about that. that, that that's fine. Well, it wasn't fine with me." And here's the guy said, well, you don't know, you know, you need a certain amount for analysis, blah, blah, blah. I said, we had an agreement. So I was really roiled at this point. But anyway, they were to keep it under radiation, and they did. And he asked me to call him on um, in the next week. I, I, I believe this was, I think it was Wednesday, you can check the book. And uh, I called him uh, from Ellsworth down in Virginia. Uh, in the night right after I had stupidly agreed to take the there in the first place, uh, I had a meeting with uh, a very high up military officer, very high up, and he, he called me a damn fool. And he said, you know what's going to happen to that. You're never going to get the, the true results. Okay, on Wednesday, I called Frankel, and he said, he said Ray, he said, I, I think you're going to be uh, kind of excited about, uh, about the results because the results are such that they could be interpreted as indicating that this 
might have had an extraterrestrial origin, an extraterrestrial technological origin. He said, because the analysis showed that it was a zinc iron alloy, which, of course, would make a, a nice, uh, malleable uh, coating, uh, corrosion-resistant malleable coating for a landing gear. And he said, here's what we did. He said, when we found out, when we saw the critical electrical diffraction pattern of it, and uh, interpreted the pattern and, and realized what it was. He said, I, I checked for any foundry in the world that would have produced an alloy of that type. He said, there's simply are none. He said, there's nothing like that made here. He said, I'm not saying it couldn't be made because it's simply an iron alloy, but there's nobody has made one. No one's producing one. He said, so it could be taken to support the idea that it could have had a, it's certainly uh, technological and it could have had a, an extraterrestrial origin. I was very appreciative. I was very thrilled. He said there are two trace elements that uh, we need to, to check on, uh, which we're going to do in, in uh, with spectroscopy uh, just in the next day or two, and, and you'd call back and find out what those are. But, uh, you know, the, the lion's share of the, the sample is absolutely, uh, it's just in kind of line. That was it. Well, um, when I called back at the suggested time, they said Franco could not come to the phone. And I forget how much this went on uh, several days. And uh, Franco could not come to the phone. The last time I tried to get Franco himself, uh, his uh, secretary said, well, he's in a security conference and, and can't talk to you. Well, of course, that raised my <laughs> my listening level, my suspicion level, to say right then. Ultimately, I said, I won't hear. He promised me. Well, ultimately, uh, one of his subordinates called. Oh, he's all named in the data given in the book, and I have a letter from him. He said, oh, it was all a mistake. Sorry to, to you know, throw water on your hopes of extra evidence of an extraterrestrial craft, but uh, all we analyzed was silica dioxide. In other words, it was, it was, you were looking at... Uh, at uh, broken quartz crystals. We were all looking at broken quartz crystals with pseudo-metallic refractions. I said, wait a minute. Silica dioxide does not have a crystal structure that even resembles zinc or iron or an alloy thereof. I said, it's impossible. And they said, well, you're going to have to take that because that's the official answer. And I said, I'm sure it's the official answer, but it's not the real one. So when I got off the phone, I called Dr. P.E. Smith at uh, in Corpus Christi, Delaware College, and um, and I didn't tell him that this had anything to do with the UFO, but I, I told him that we'd had a metal sample analyzed and gathered. And uh, they had originally told us it was zinc iron alloy, and they came back, oh, it's all a mistake. It was uh, silicon dioxide, it's just quartz crystals. He said, you know, I don't know. I have to get his exact word, something that's like, you know, I don't know what those guys have been smoking or why they would tell you something like that, but it can't be. I said, there's no way that, that the X-ray diffraction pattern of a zinc panel would, would in any way resemble uh, quartz crystal. That is just not possible. And, of course, Alan Heining told me the same thing, and Alan's not a metallurgist, but he, he was not, not a metallurgist, but he checked with metallurgist friends of his, and they told the same thing, and he always told me, Ray, you know, forget the, the, the disclaimer and accept the original one, because um, the mistake could not have happened. And uh, that's probably part of why uh, Alan gave me a really nice letter that I've 
offered to anybody who wants to receive it, uh, intended to use in promoting the book. And Allen even, and where I describe all this and accuse the government of a cover-up, uh, he even gave, donated a copy of my book. I didn't know about it until John Schuster told me uh, a few months later, but he donated a copy where John was working there at the time at the, the Manned Space Center, uh, the, the John, what's now called the Johnson Space Center in Houston. And there's a technical library there, and he donated a copy of my book to them and subsequently brought two astronauts over to our project offices to talk to me about our, our work that was ongoing at that time. So I think that my position on it was well backed up. Richard Hall, who was the one that took me there and got me in the mess to start with, by persuading me, I, I don't know that he knew what was going to happen at all. I'm not saying that. But he insists that I'm crazy for not accepting the government's disclaimer and that it was silica dioxide. I challenged him to debate this. Uh, I, I said, we, maybe you find conference would allow us to debate this. You take the position that the mistake could have been made. I'll take the position that it was impossible. He refused. He knew that right. he would lose the debate. So that's right. It. Okay. So, Ray, let, let's rein this back in for a minute because there, there are a number of issues about this that are, that are really fascinating. One of the things, you know, when I first read about this case, this idea that there were these four strut marks in the ground. Now, when we talked to Ted Phillips – a while ago, one of the things that comes up in trace evidence cases where you've got, you know, you've got two main types of craft that, that, that essentially land discs and oval shaped craft and something that that Ted started talking about. And I said, to him, hey, wait a minute, look at this for a second. It, almost almost universally, when you have a disc shaped craft that lands, you have three struts that come down. But when you have oval shaped craft, you have four struts, and this is pretty much across the board consistent. And in the Socorro case, fits that pattern where you, we're hearing that this is an oval craft, and and because of the uh, the weight distribution and center of gravity issues, you you would absolutely expect to see four struts, which in in this case um, is indeed what happened. Now now based on those strut impressions. Was there any way, did anybody try to figure out the potential weight of the craft? Yes, yes, yes. There were calculations uh, made on that. Uh, and um, I don't remember, in fact, I read it just the other day. I don't think that I quoted uh, the weight figure in the book, but it was it was ex very high density. Uh, I mean, I remember that it was much higher density than, say, any conventional aircraft would have had, which pretty, you can make various interpretations of that, but it was... It, if you took an aircraft body that size, for example, even with its wings on, it would—I I would say, from my memory, it was—it wasn't maybe even just a tenth the weight that this thing must have been. You hear it on TV. You hear it on radio. Cash for gold. Yes, it's an enticing phrase during these challenging days, but the real question is how much cash are you going to get for your gold and silver? Are you going to get the best value? Well, you can get the best price from a company whose owners have decades of experience in the business. Welcome to Goldbug. The folks at Goldbug warn you that many of those high-budget gold buyers are paying far less than you deserve for your gold and silver. Goldbug will give you top dollar each and every time. To learn more, call 1-866-596-6134. That number again, 1-866-596-6134 for Goldbug. Or visit us online at goldbug.com. That's Goldbug with two Gs. Goldbug. 
Paracast.com. This is Philip Rodno. You're listening to Paracast with Gene and Dick, one of the most informative shows out there. So listen closely. We're talking to Ray Stanford and Christopher O'Brien focusing on the Sicaro, New Mexico case. There's a lot of aspects we can catch up on here, but we don't have a lot of time left, as David said. There is a new controversy about this case where someone, not someone who's just one of those house skeptics, but somebody who's actually been involved in the UFO field, has said this was all a hoax perpetrated by college students? Is that what they're claiming? That's what he, he was claiming. Okay, so this person, this ufologist, Tony Regalia, is that his name? Regalia. Yeah. What specifically... Regalia. Sure. What specifically is he saying that makes him conclude this case was a hoax? He's saying that um, the uh, former president of the uh, Mexico, the New Mexico Institute of Technology, Dr. Sterling Colgate, had said in a letter to... Dr. Linus Pauling, who was a recipient of the Nobel Prize, or maybe more than one, that uh, that this case was a hoax put on by a student of New Mexico Tech. And he, however, admitted that he did not know who this was. There was speculation, but he didn't know who it was. And uh, Bergalia, oh, he thinks... Some Johnny come late and say, oh, I think I must know somebody that could have done that. Well, could have done it. Let me, let, may I, may I take this claim apart? Is it okay if I slice it like a, like a piece of bologna? <laughs> sure. Okay, here's slice, the blade. Go for it, man. Here's the blade. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Now let's first look at the character of this Dr. Sterling Colgate. Sterling Colgate uh, was an early starter, and he uh, is a well-known and uh, scientist. He, in fact, believe it or not, was involved with the, the early aspects of the atomic bomb program, and um, he worked with all the more famous people that uh, that some of you might remember from that era in the 1940s. He is now, I believe, 81 or 82 uh, years of age, and he lives in Albuquerque and still works uh, for, well, let's say, a government-run uh, uh, government contractor. And um, but let me let me tell you some things I've learned in my investigation of Dr. Sterling Colgate. Um, for example, a uh, a former student the name of John W. Shipman, posted some very interesting things on his website, not in the context of this claim, but they bear upon the character of Dr. Colgate. Uh, his statements, of course, were made because he happened to like Dr. Colgate. But when we read what Dr. Colgate was like, we will have reason to believe uh, that uh, his claim was not credible. First, let me mention that I ran into Dr. Colgate's claims about this when I was in Socorro on the very first visit. Two different people that I had talked to had been over asking at the university, asking Dr. Colgate, in fact, what did he think about this thing that had happened? Now, here's what he told both news people independently. He said, well, it was a hoax created by one or more students here at New Mexico Tech. And naturally, being news people, they asked, well, how do you know this? He said, well, because... A alien an alien spaceship could not come the distances from the start. I'm an astrophysicist. And they, they, they couldn't have gotten here. 
They couldn't come here. And uh, this thing had to be a hoax created by uh, one or more of our, our students. It's just obvious because it's not anything from, you know, any craft we know of. And it's, it's not an alien spaceship because they can't get here. So it was created by something. Well, can you give me a name? No, I can't give you a name. And, you know, I might have my suspicions, but I can't give you a name. Well, Dr. Colgate still has not delivered a name. And... Uh, let me tell you some facts about uh, this now that uh, might, might shed some light on it. Uh, for example, uh, Tom Shipman said in a totally different context um, that he, in fact, was convinced to come to New Mexico Tech originally uh, as a high school student in Hodge, Mexico, because um, he enjoyed Dr. Sterling Colgate's talk. And in that talk, even then the high school students, he told a story from his college days in, in, in Connecticut. He said that one weekend uh, there was a party at a sorority house, and uh, they decided, Dr. Colgate suggested he and his buddies decided to tie down the safety valve on the bar, soak it up, and leave. Now, this is a, a stunt that could cause death. Ouch. And, you know, this shows great irresponsibility about the willingness to have fun at other people's expense. He, he, he said at the time, that's the kind, now this is an exact quote, the kind of, quote, technological uproar, close quote, I like to cause. How about that? Now, here, 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 here's, here's another one. Uh, this is uh, a, a talk that Dr. Colgate, about a talk Dr. Colgate gave at New Mexico Tech. Now, most of his speech uh, was about experiments that he, along with, of course, tech students, were running uh, and they, they claimed that this was because they were studying cloud formations, but I don't get the relevance at all. So by they, what, what they were doing, they were injecting ionized smoke into the atmosphere. The first, first project was a smoke ring generator. Now, it was basically a vortex gun. Now, he, he had a crew build a large box with a round hole at the top, Canvas chest on the and a canvas a sheet rather, I'm sorry, on the bottom. Now the aircraft engine, an aircraft engine from an old B uh, twenty six uh, bomber, World War two bomber, was mounted on the side of this box, and uh, all was added to the field, and it gave a smoky, very black, smoky exhaust, which was blown into the box by the blade of the aircraft engine spinning. Okay, a rope was attached at the center of the canvas. I'm looking at his notes here. It was pulled tight and then released so that it expelled smoke from the hole at the top of the box, blowing smoke rings several feet in diameter. Now, this was supposed to go into the air a long way. To assure this, now, this is really clever. They stretched wires at right angles to each other across the top of the hole and electrified them so that the smoke vortex coming out would be electrified. Well, what happens? If you electrify a whirling vortex like that, as it spins, since moving electro-generated magnetic field, it will exercise magnetic confinement, and the smoke ring will last vastly longer than it would just on its own. Clever, clever. Here's where the, the fun really comes in. And, and most of the speech he gave was about... Two experiments, and let, let's talk about Ray. You yeah, know, uh, Ray. Ray, I got to pull you in here a minute. This is getting so tangential. Wait, wait, but I mean, me, go ahead. No, it's yeah. not tangential. I'm sorry. I'll hang up right now if you want to say that. Okay. No, I, I want to keep us focused. Let Ray. me tell you what is important in understanding Doctor Colgate. It's not tangential. Who's talking here? 
Yeah, this is David who's making this point, Ray. We're just, we're okay, going David, off. Look, yeah. look, I'm not going off on a tangent. You haven't heard the rest of it. Before we get into a battle royal here, Ray, the key is here is we want to hear this, but we only have so much time on the show. Well, and therefore, we need to kind of, you know, kind of bring it in, focus on it. To destroy the claim of Dr. Koke, we need to show his character and why he would make the claim. Sure, all right. Okay. Believe it or not, the second phase of the experiment involved a huge plastic, flexible plastic tube, kind of like garbage bag type material, except it was uh, several feet in diameter, 100 feet long. And Dr. Colgate called this Paul Bunyan's condom. This thing was, uh, in fact, it was so much a joke, and he loved pain, that a picture of this thing inflated with uh, releasing these rings was in fact displayed at, at the workman's center in the uh, the men's restroom. There's a picture of it, and it totally inflated to 100 feet long with hugging it, the playmate of the month. Colgate loved to, to joke about this, even as he at one point suggested, quote, that he could, uh, okay, let, let me put it this way. The, the male-female ratio out there in New Mexico Tech, as you can imagine, was about six to one, six males to one female. Now, one night at... Uh, bar, there was a friend of Shipman uh, that he called a spectrograph that, uh, listen, what Kelgate is describing, his plan to establish, he says, a student-run bordello. He had all the logistics figured out. The student council would rent a house within walking distance of the campus, hire two female students. The charge would then be 10 bucks a throw with a small takeoff to pay off the authorities and the rest to split 50-50 with the student council. Now, he says, was it serious? He says, I'll never know. And he had said earlier that the students at New Mexico Tech, while Berkeley was going wild, were really very controlled and conservative. So he says the tech, we tech guys were pretty conservative bunch of students, but we had a relatively radical president. So I think this is relevant simply because it reflects upon the nature of the character. Hi, this is Michelle from Namecheap. We don't have millions of dollars to get race car drivers or models to endorse us, but we will do everything we can to make those who buy domains or web hosting from us as happy as possible. We offer a free SSL as well as free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers or troublemakers. We won't bug you with obnoxious upsells when you check out or in your inbox, but most importantly, our customer service team really cares about you. It's what we pride ourselves in the most because it's your endorsement that means the most to us. If you like what you hear, get deals on both our domains and our web hosting at radio.namecheap.com, radio.namecheap.com, and be sure to play our contest by following us on Twitter. Thanks, Michelle. And by the way, listeners, please use the coupon code RADIODAY, that's RADIODAY, one word, for special discounts at Namecheap. Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Ray Stanford and Christopher O'Brien, and we're talking about Saqqara, New Mexico, and an attempt to portray this as a hoax. Now, Chris, you've been listening quietly here, and maybe you can chime in here, and we can 
we don't have a lot of time left. As I said, Chris, you had any questions or follow-ups? Well, uh, just a couple of observations, uh, uh, Gene. I, I really, I really feel that um, uh, it's important that when dealing with revisionist uh, history, um, such as Bagalia's piece, uh, I think uh, you know the Paracast is doing a great job by going to. You know, the preeminent, uh, source for information about the reality of this particular case. It is, um, it is one of the most important cases, I think, in the annals of ufology because of the quality of the witnesses and the quality of the, uh, follow-up investigation that was done. And I, I think it's really, uh, it's really unfortunate that, uh, that people try to, uh, you know, perpetrate uh, revisionist uh, history in, in the manner that's been done here with, uh, with this particular furor over the Regalia piece. And, and I really want to thank Ray for all of the fine work that he's done. And uh, I think it's really important that we, uh, we acknowledge uh, good science uh, in this field instead of going off uh, and stirring up the pot a little bit with innuendo and stuff that, that <laughs> it wouldn't even stand up uh, you know, to any uh, real serious scrutiny. So, I, again, I, I'm just listening fascinated uh, to Ray, and I really feel that uh, that it's important that, uh, that this show is being done because of the rebuttal uh, that needs to be done. Okay, Ray, a few more questions here. Are there any other things we should know in evaluating this claim that the Sakaro event was a hoax? Yes. Uh, a claim should always fit evidence related to the case on which claims are being made. And what I discussed earlier, all the items, the, the supposed radar tracking, but clearly the witnesses of the approach to Morris accounts and the details of them, as well as Kaisenkratzer and the women off at a distance, they must, they cannot uh, fit in with the idea that a student was out there with, as the claim that by Bergraglia was, that it was probably a, had a loudspeaker to make the roaring sound. Well, uh, it happens that back in 1964, there were no amplifiers, no speaker system that could possibly produce a sound of the loudness that was heard through the moors, cars rumbling at the slope by the women who were at least a quarter mile away in their homes, the one that went out and saw the officer going up the slope and the, the landing flame in the sky. This simply doesn't fit. Zamora is 35 feet from the object. It doesn't fit the claim that, well, the students that were doing it must have hidden because it doesn't account for the land gear that pulled it up. It doesn't account for the object he saw, the terrible exhaust. It's turning to silence and it's taking off at high speed and according to calculations by Brad Sparks, an engineer, reaching supersonic velocity within a matter of a few seconds. Also, the takeoff was opposite the wind. The wind was out of the west-southwest and that object took off directly into the wind. So the idea in Bergalia's calling that this would have been, that the, the object per se would have been a balloon is ridiculous. And the idea that a helicopter might have been involved as well is ridiculous. No sounds of helicopter were heard. Samora certainly knew a helicopter had he seen it or heard it. It is incommensurate with the facts and uh, considering what we know about the teasing character of Dr. Colgate, uh, I think we have to realize we're really dealing with an old rumor that people hope is true uh, when they're skeptics, but it just simply doesn't fit the facts. I don't know what landed there. I don't know what took off, 
but I know that it was beyond anything at the time, as the Air Force concluded, couldn't explain it at all, but that also the technology, so far as I know, even to date, has not been duplicated that can do this. But we're dealing with 1964, not 2009. Is Officer Zamora still alive? Yes, he is. Have you talked to him lately about what he feels about the case now? No. I didn't, uh, you know, to me, the man's integrity is such that it, it is ridiculous for me to even talk to Lonnie about that because I'll guarantee you, Lonnie was not a UFO believer, but finally, one night, my wife and I were watching TV in the, you know, a few years back, and he actually said that now he thought it could possibly have been an alien device. Now, to come to him and say, well, Lonnie, what do you think about this? Well, the answer is already obvious. Man has been bothered for years by people. His, his daughter was four years old at the time. Well, when she turned 21, she asked him, Ed, you know, I'm 21. Would you, would you even talk about this now? And he said, look, I, I don't want to talk about it. He said, look, I'm giving you a whole box of all the correspondence I received. I didn't answer any of it. But if you want to know what happened, simply read this book. And he handed her my book. He said, Ray Stanford is the only person that got all the details right. When you read it, you know everything I know about the case except the experience of actually seeing it. And she wrote me, and she said that, and she asked me to call her, and I called her with a very nice talk. She mainly just wanted to know if I had learned anything else, and uh, I told her what subsequently I had learned, uh, but uh, that was it. Yeah, I, I really feel it would even be rude to confront a lie with such a scurrilous claim as this. Chris, you had a question? What about the other, uh, I remember uh, hearing uh, some years back that, um, you know, somebody came up with a theory that this could have been a some sort of prototype of the lunar module that landed. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that particular attempt to uh, dis- yeah, yeah. Uh, explain uh, this? One of the fellows, uh, of course, the Air Force checked this out years ago. The, 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 the Air Force and the Defense Intelligence Agency, apparently, and the CIA, looked at every aspect of anything that could have been launched in that area. In the first place, the, the so-called lunar lander had not, there was just a crude prototype that, uh, in fact, was, uh, was, was tethered. And it, it, it looked like, you know, just a bunch of uh, rigging with no uh, covering anything. And, uh, in fact, at that stage, the only thing that had happened with it is that uh, it had, at one point, and the astronaut was somewhat injured uh, that, that fell off of the training astronaut. But uh, it wasn't later, in fact, until we got anything that uh, would, uh, in, and even then it didn't resemble the, the actual device that landed on the moon. And uh, there's a lot of facts. Don Ledger, however he pronounces it up in uh, Nova Scotia, who is himself a pilot, has done in-depth analysis on this, and I think he put it all out on UFO updates if anybody wanted to look it up. But he has done a thorough job, and it isn't even remotely possible that anything connected with that program was it could have ever have gotten over to Socorro. Not only then, but even later before they went to the moon. Does that exclude any kind of test aircraft? And now I'm basically taking the two creatures or whatever they were out of the picture just temporarily. But does that take out any possibility that it was a secret? aircraft being developed, say, at Area 51. They had an Area 51 then that might possibly have caused this case. Well, the Air Force checked on, on all possible avenues of, of ex, not only experimental craft, but, you know, with, uh, let's say, also with 
private corporations are working in research and development. And they said there was absolutely nothing. Not only that, but uh, this is a, a, is a vast distance from um, Area 51. And at that time, they were not even working on... Uh, well, they were working toward, but they had not uh, flown until 19, uh, in fact, 77 uh, stealth aircraft. So there was nothing that could possibly have performed in this way. And keep in mind that uh, in a very few seconds after it took its, its landing vertical ascent, near vertical ascent, it was uh, supersonic. Nothing at all. And not only that, had there been, it would have produced a shot boom. There was never anything heard during all of the high-speed phase of this object. There was no, no sonic boom? UFOs. There was no sonic boom at all? Okay. That's right. Okay, that certainly brings another aspect into it. Looking at the entire UFO picture, similar cases. We always want to see if they're trends, you know? So is there a comparable case anywhere in the world that we could look at and say this is very much like Saqqara, New Mexico? There are numerous ones. Uh, by the way, the one that, that most people compared to it was a case of Maurice Massey at Aix-en-Provence in France in 1964. And uh, this case is well documented. He, um, he was a violet farmer, and the UFO landed out in his violet field, and uh, uh, diminutive beings, as in this case, came out of it. It had four landing gear. And... Uh, I, I don't remember all the details too well enough to you know, give you a complete account. The point is, this affected the growth of plant life. Evidently, of course, by affecting the growth of soil, because years later, not only uh, representatives uh, relative to Japan and the, the French government investigation of UFOs, but other independent investigators went there, and no matter how, how many you know decades afterward, the, the crop, the, the, the current crop of lavender was totally studied and, you know, growth is started in the circle where it had landed. And this is characteristic of the effects uh, that UFOs, uh, they tend to to affect the soil. For, for example, they often tend to affect the soil in a way that, for example, if you take a clump of it and run water over it, it is not hydroscopic. The water just kind of runs over it as if there were an odd type of uh, surface tension that prevented absorption. You could take a, a pile of the soil from outside the, the landing area as a control sample, and, you know, it would absorb the expected amount of, of water right away. So we don't know what that effect is, but uh, that's one of the things, uh, certainly in the experience that changed me, made me direct my life away from rocket engineering and into trying to solve the UFO mystery with the instruments of science so to understand physics, the UFO landed, uh, passed over our head six feet over. It landed about 175 feet from us, four witnesses. And literally, my poor brother who was there took his wife over 20 years later to the site, and the vegetation where that thing had landed is still very stunted in, in the, the circle where it landed, contrast to all the vegetation around. So, uh, it's not unique uh, in, in the effect of, of affecting the soil in odd ways. And uh, the shape of the object, contrary to what people say, as I said, back in 54, there, I think there were at least 12 cases that, that were probably the same object or the same class of object. And bringing it back beyond the event toward the present time, we're going <laughs> this way in time, Literally, uh, my project crew, my mobile laboratory crew, and I saw an object exactly like this, of the same size and the same proportions. We were heading up 
uh, from Phoenix to uh, Prescott on what I used to call when I lived there until 1960, early 67, the Black Canyon Highway, on Interstate. Uh, right down the right down the street from me. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we're having a broad daylight. You know, it was one something in the afternoon, and this so and so took off within 800 feet of us. Uh, and now, why planted? I don't know. It was in the middle of a choya <laughs> forest. Let's say choya is the most vicious cactus in the world, and uh, it was right in the middle of it. Now this thing took off. And it was in a ravine, just like it was at Socorro. This thing took off, and by golly, I won't go into the description of it because we don't have time. But this thing passed within 400 feet of us in broad daylight right across the highway. And it was wonderful. It was astonishing. But talking about, to me, a confirmation of the Zamora object, there it was. And, uh, of course, some days earlier when we encountered this kind of object at night of the shape, uh, we actually recorded not only the light spectra, the sound, but gravity-like waves or gravity waves and extreme low-frequency magnetic waves simultaneously from the object. So we have these objects all the way from at least 54, all the way right through 1978 and probably up well, to the present time as well. Actually, Ray, I saw an egg-shaped object fly up Oak Creek Canyon on March 27, 2004. Uh, right here uh, in you know in Sedona, where, where I previously lived, I'm in Camp Verde now. But uh, also, just for your information, we had a a really amazing sighting uh, a year ago, November, uh, right in that same area where you had your uh, um, experience on uh, on the interstate on 17, and uh, had numerous witnesses, um, none of whom <clears throat> were willing to go on the record. But um, it was a very large 300-foot object that descended down into um, the ravine, kind of around the Bumblebee area between the highway and uh, the Bradshaw Mountains. So just just to let you know, there's still activity uh, in that particular area. Plus, I have seen uh, only one time uh, I've ever seen an object of this uh, shape, but I saw a white, it looked like a flying chicken egg. For lack of a better uh, term, it was slightly pointed on one end, based based on my observation, and uh, it was flying silently, maybe four thousand feet up, not even uh, thirty five hundred or four thousand feet up, right in broad daylight, going right up Oak Creek Canyon. So I figured I'd kind of let you know that there's there's still activity and still that particular shaped object that's being seen uh, at least here in Arizona. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We are talking to Ray Stanford and Christopher O'Brien focusing on the Sicaro, New Mexico case. So, Ray, it's 45 years later. Is there anything today that we can investigate any further to get some more insights? On this case, yes. Uh, the rock I mentioned with the mounted and reordered crystals 
uh, uh, pass on top of what were, of course, Christmas. Uh, I am going to have it sliced just as you would slice a meter in what's called microscopic thin section and viewing it under uh, what we call cross nickels and uh, a light source. We can tell if it, a lot of things about it, but we can tell if it is birefringent or if it in fact inside has been turned to glass. Is this just on the surface or is it inside? It does indeed tend to confirm the, the, uh, resonance heating, uh, idea if, if it is that way inside. So, although we, seeing it on the outside, we, we need to look inside to see how far this went in. If it's to it, then we really have something, uh, that's even more uh, substantial to an idea of very highly exotic propulsion. Well, it can be very, very difficult, I guess, sometimes to get information about cases this old, which is why I raised the question. We look at, for example, the Roswell case, which is, what, over 60 years old now, 62 years old, and most of the witnesses are no longer around. Getting evidence, well, it's the kind of thing that you want to say, well, you know what, we got as much as we could about Roswell, and maybe we just have to set it aside and get involved in other stuff. Now, with Sakaro, yes, there's further work that needs to be done, but you also said there are obviously are similar cases, and Chris mentioned his own sighting. Are there other cases we can investigate as intensively to get an accumulation of data? Now, are we talking of objects like this or other kinds of objects? Let's focus on this kind of experience, this kind of sighting, this kind of object. I, uh, of course, you know, we have the, the cases I mentioned back in France that are really too long ago to do anything much with. Uh, uh, there are various reports have been made on Saul and Alice and so on and so forth in the Maurice Marseille 1954 case at Aix en But, uh, as far as other things, I really am not knowledgeable of any cases. Unless we do have evidence like, uh, uh, traces, anecdotal cases are not, aren't worth a whole lot unless you just have a lot of highly skilled, very observant witnesses. That's that's why this case convinced me. It got Heineck away from his skepticism, and it was the major turning block in his life in viewing UFOs as something very serious in this series. But it convinced me that I had to start putting together a, a good array of electronic and optical instruments to try to get hard data on these things, because even with good witnesses, as in the Socorro case, and it's limited but very exciting and interesting physical evidences, we need more, and that's why I went out. This this started it for me, and subsequently, you know, I've made tremendous progress, progress I never would have anticipated. But most of our events, except the ones mentioned in the summer of 1978, July, uh, have involved other types of objects, the large carriers, and triangular and wing-shaped objects and dome discs, Primarily, and in, in daylight uh, cases, we, we filmed and recorded electronically uh, parameters uh, that are related to their propulsion. We have some very propulsion diagnostic films. Uh, they don't happen to be of this particular class of object. One of the things that we see here, of course, is also with the claim that it was a hoax, we don't have any smoking gun to prove that. We don't have testimony from the people who did it, just somebody who says he knew somebody. No direct testimony. We don't have the people who say, I perpetrated the hoax. Here it is. Here's the stuff I used in college. Doesn't exist, does it? Now, yes, that's correct. There's no reason, that if the story were true, there 
shouldn't have been. Usually people that create hopes and fool people like the I fooled you, I fooled you. And there was no law against it. If it were a hoax, it was, and it couldn't have been. Even had it been, and the, the facts were not as, as solid as they are in this case, uh, there was no law that would make the afraid to, to say it. Like there would be in cases where someone put up an object that was endangering an aircraft or was shooting a, a laser, which is now legal uh, you know, yeah. in the sky. Also, the statute of limitations, you know, we're talking about 45 years ago, and certainly it's not like the Roman Polanski case where he left the country when he was about to be sentenced on something that there was a guilty plea. Here, there's no jurisdiction. Somebody can come out tomorrow with all the evidence and say, I perpetrated the hoax. Here it is. Nobody can touch them. Yeah, show me one college student that wouldn't have laid claim to that if they had done it. <laughs> I mean, it's inconceivable. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, but they would have even showed up. It was being brought in their professor who loved to create smoke rings in the sky. <laughs> and let me let me say that I think the sad part about this uh, this report that has been exposed to the student votes is well, there's two things. One is that it demeans the character and quality, and it's severe. I mean, wonderful objectivity of Zamora as a witness and the other witnesses outside, particularly Zamora. And the, the other bad thing is that the news media remember headlines, but not facts in UFO cases. And people, as well as the media, years from now, you bring up the score case. But, you know, I heard that was explained a long time ago as a student hoax. That's the sad thing about this. A story with no basis wouldn't even stand up in any court of law, much less a court, if you want it, that of science, will now be remembered as uh, an explanation for a wonderful case that is important uh, still to study, and we're still studying evidence. Now, do you have any more writings that might be coming up in the near future we can check out? Well, I, I will be posting uh, an account, uh, a very concise account of the facts that, that show that this case was not a student prank. And uh, I'll be posting that to any website that, that wants to, uh, to post it. I say it will notify me. Uh, I'll be happy to, to provide them with copy. There may be some some illustrations that uh, will, will go with it if they want what them to carry photographs of other other things. So I plan to do that. Uh, as far as anything beyond this, yes, there there is, but that's much too deep to go into this point. Not this case. I'm not talking about it. You know, Chris, let's changes. kind of focus uh, on you for just a moment here before we split for the day. You have a new book that came out. I do. Yes. And the book is about tricksters. That is correct. Okay, so tell us, sir, about <laughs> what we can look forward to in this new book. Well, uh, gosh, that's pretty tough in a, in a soundbite. The trickster is one of the uh, oldest and least understood uh, collective unconscious archetypes, if you will, in the uh, using Carl Jung's definition, uh, basically all humanity uh, contains in the collective uh, very primal symbols uh, and characters that uh, are called archetypes. The trickster being the most, uh, the oldest one that actually has a face on it. The shadow would be the only one that would be older. And what I've done is I've expanded the definition of of the trickster, um, kind of flying in the face of convention a little bit. Uh, basically, I've I've uh, refuted the anthropologists' uh, observations that the, or feeling that the trickster is uh, unconscious and that the trickster is static; it does not evolve. I have. I have taken that, uh, I think, and refuted it very effectively and uh, looked at cross-cultural uh, correlations between various trickster forms, and I've come up with a pretty interesting theory that does uh, suggest that possibly we're dealing 
with many paranormal events, uh, something that is uh, possibly uh, connected to uh, this ancient archetype called the trickster. And uh, I, I think I've done a pretty good job of uh, presenting my, uh, my theory. And it took a year of hard research and uh, a lot of aspirin because the material does uh, get very intense, complicated. And, but uh, I think I've uh, laid it out in a pretty simple and straight-ahead way. And I uh, invite anybody that uh, would be interested in the subject to um, go to my website, ourstrangeplanet.com. And uh, there's a little bit of uh, information on there about the book and some, uh, some pretty fascinating articles and uh, some background uh, research information there, along with uh, Ray Stanford's very compelling letter concerning a, a number of cases that uh, he has actually alluded to here today. But uh, if you go there, it's, uh, uh, the paper is uh, posted on my website. Again, that's OurStrangePlanet.com. And uh, I really thank Ray for uh, providing that uh, very interesting uh, report, uh, letter, uh, to the site. And uh, I, again, I want to thank Ray for being on, on your show today. Uh, I mean, this is... I think this is uh, really important, and uh, as I said before, and I think Ray uh, is one of our <laughs> our national treasures in the UFO field. Let's put it that international treasure, if you will. And I, I really applaud his uh, his efforts here. And thanks a lot, Ray, for being on. I'd like to thank Gene and and uh, Dave for for inviting me on. And uh, I think it was important we we get this out. And uh, so, really, thanks for an opportunity to to sink and country. I wanted to drop a couple of quick questions to you, Christopher. Definitely, we're going to have you back on the PowerCast to talk about the book Stalking the Tricksters. I have a copy here, which I am in the process of reading, and I'm sure David is busy reading his. But looking at the participation of the tricksters, are they heavily involved in UFO research? Could the tricksters have been involved in any of the cases we've been discussing? Well, I think uh, inadvertently uh, humans uh, adopt trickster tactics uh, for various reasons and to to enact uh, particular personal agendas. Uh, human tricksters tend to be parasitic. They tend to have uh, an agenda. True tricksters, uh, which is more of an energy or, or a force, tends to be uh, symbiotic. In, in, in other words, works alongside and with humanity as opposed to... Uh, in a contrary sort of way, and uh, and I think human tricksters, uh, by and large, uh, Bernie Madoff would be a real good example. Uh, Sixty billion dollars he got away with, uh, at least uh, for quite a while. History is filled withními- with uh, human tricksters, but uh, the primordial trickster energy, I think, uh, is very involved in in UFOs. I think Ray Ray might uh, uh, be interested in some of my theories in that regard. I, I do have a sense that we are dealing with a very complicated scenario, and nothing really is. Uh, you can't uh, factor anything in or out at this point in my mind. So basically speaking here, what we're saying here is that any case that we investigate, anything that we explore in UFO and general paranormal research could have a trickster element of some sort. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, before we let you go, we only have about two minutes left with the program. All right. Any well-known UFO case that we know about that you could say, you know, there's some trickster stuff going on there? How about Roswell? Oh? <laughs> I think Roswell uh, is a classic example of, uh, of a, uh, a case that uh, may contain uh, some pretty uh, important tricksterish elements. 
the very fact that the trickster is really involved in creating novelty and change and breaking down structure uh, within a given culture. And if you look at the cultural effect of Roswell and how it has irrevocably changed uh, our view of UFOs and perpetrated, uh, you know, the the super meme at this point that UFOs are of exclusively of extraterrestrial uh, origin. I think that that it by literal definition in in, in classification, I think that uh, Roswell would be one of the ultimate trickster events in uh, modern history. Yes. So basically, the result being a trickster event, but what about the cause? Well, I don't think anybody's really conclusively proven anything about Roswell yet. And, and the more time that, we, that goes by, you know, obviously the more witnesses have come forward. But out of the 300 or so witnesses that have been uh, supposedly uh, attached to the Roswell case, only five really uh, have ever said that it, uh, in their minds, that it was something of extraterrestrial origin. But look how just those five people have had such a tremendous impact in the culture in terms of how we view UFOs, how we view the Roswell case. You know, again, I do, I do sense that there, it, it could be inadvertent tricksterism at work, but uh, I have a feeling that there's something a little bit more uh, primal uh, going on with the Roswell case. And there's a new book that's out that looks at Roswell as uh, from an anthropological point of view, and uh, which I haven't read yet. I do plan on reading it, uh, but I, I do really look at Roswell as being an important uh, watershed event uh, in modern history, and has has, like I said, irrevocably changed how uh, the culture views UFOs. Thank you very much. Christopher O'Brien, his new book is entitled Stalking the Tricksters, and we'll discuss more about the tricksters and what they might mean in a future episode of the Paracast. We want to thank very much Ray Stanford. Ray, thank you so much for all the work that you did in figuring out what the Sakaro UFO case was all about. Sakaro Saucer in a Pentagon Pantry is the book he wrote back in the 1970s. If you check on Amazon, they have used copies. It's worth trying to find it. Ray, thank you so much for joining us in the Paracast. Thank you, Christopher. Cool, Gene. Thanks, David. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.